listening to the Abide Podcast. To find out more about Abide, go to AbideChurchFL.com and enjoy today's message. Thank you. You can sit down. You can sit down. Is this, does it have to be in this spot? Can I, can I breathe? <laughs> I want to see you. I want to see your faces. And, and I don't want you behind me. Never know what that group right there is going to do with my back turn. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I, David said it well. I got to live with them for, I've known them for decades. Got to live with them for five months. And if you've ever lived with them for more than a week, you're instant family with the Bradshaws and with Fredericksburg and Awaken the Dawn. That's what they do. In fact, I, I fell in love not with just David and Ashley, but their whole family. And I'm, I'm seeing their kids who are like grown up now. It's freaking me out a little bit. They're like full-grown men and women. It's amazing. And, um, but I love them. It's family. We get to do this together. How many of you know it's a great privilege to love God? I mean, he could have made you for any purpose. He didn't have to make you for the purpose of loving him. He could have made you a worker. And that's it. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. He could have made you like the angels to do, have his glory on them and fulfill his purpose. But instead, he made you for love. That's a great privilege that you get to love God. You get to. You don't have to. You get to. In fact, the Bible doesn't say loving God is a mystery. Loving God is the most wise thing you can do. Actually, it calls... Sin, a mystery. The mystery of iniquity. In other words, why would anybody do that? That's insane. What is it about the human heart that loves sin? It's crazy. The Bible doesn't say loving God's crazy. On that day when you stand before him, you'll be like, oh my gosh, that was the most wise thing I ever did. He's beautiful and everybody else knows he's beautiful. We just had a short season where we didn't know anything the human race, and we really got off track. But praise God, he came as a man, lived our life, died our death, rose again, seated us at the right hand of the Father, and is coming back to make us just like him, and we get to fulfill our created design. On that day, loving him is going to be the most wise thing. You're going to be like, oh my gosh. I wish I'd have known this. I wish I'd have known he was this lovely, this good, this amazing, this holy. I, I would have been... Ah, I would give it him more. Regret won't be, oh, I failed here. Regret will be, oh, I could have loved him more. I could have given him something. The mystery is iniquity. On that day, you'll stand before him and go, oh, my gosh, what? I had temporary insanity, and so did all the other nations. We lost it. We lost our mind. For a short period, 70 years, 80 by strength. But it'll be revealed. But it's a privilege to love him. That's the point. But how many of you know it's a greater privilege to love him together? And we get to love him together. And he joins some people in the same clan. And I, I tell Rachel all the time, I said, I, I'm, I'm in Florida on the other side of the coast. And I tell y'all this too. I go, my family from Fredericksburg, ATD, they're my, they're my clan. 
These are my kin folk down here. And so, uh, but that means uh, uh, y'all get me too. You get the crazy uncle on the other side of the coast. He's made us family. Well, I, I'm going to share something tonight. You know, there are different seasons of your life where the prophetic spirit will rest on you in different ways. In some seasons, it's you get a specific word for every group you go to. It's just tailor-made. You just know it's the season. And there are other seasons where the Lord apprehends you with a message and you can't get away, no matter who you're in front of. And it doesn't matter if you're in front of them 10 times, you're going to say the same word because you've been apprehended. And I'm in one of those seasons where I've been apprehended. And what's, what's, what I'm undone by is this concept that is represented by the Hebrew word mahanim. Now, that's a fancy word, but it just means two camps. It's the dance of the two camps. It's Mahanim is first introduced where Jacob comes upon the camp of God. And, and in that place, he sees angels, what? Descending and angels ascending. Where there's divine activity, not only of God coming down, but of worship going up. It's the dance of the two camps. It's not only does God impact us, he's created us in loving partnership where he actually lets us impact him. In the thought of me impacting him, I'm not saying change him, move him. I'm just saying he made us for love that my love actually counts when I give it to him and it touches him. Now, God, who never changes, who, who lacks nothing, wants something. And the fact that he wants something from me, it undoes me. It moves me to a different place. And so I'm in this season of looking at glimpses in the Bible where, where at the end of this story, there's a heart fully given to him. Where it's not just him releasing oil on my heart, it's me pouring it back upon his heart. Yeah. And there's no greater story than when God becomes a man and we get to see what God the Father is like. And God the Father, displayed through his Son, allows little bitty people like us to touch him and move him. How many of you have seen Chosen Season 3? Do you remember the woman with blood? Do you remember after he heals her and he holds her face and he says, Thank you for such faith. That it touched him. Anybody else see that scene? I don't, I don't know. Y'all don't watch like biblical stuff. <laughs> <Y'all>, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Netflix is better than The Chosen. <laughs> Y'all do watch like stuff like that. Everywhere, whenever I say it, somebody afterwards writes me and goes, I can't believe you recommended people to watch The Chosen. It's not the Bible. Yo, it's not the Bible, but neither is your preaching. <laughs> Everything's a creative interpretation. Lose your religious spirit and get in the flow 
of seeing Jesus as represented by saints who love him. That's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to try to paint you a picture of Jesus that's true to the text. But do I know it? everything I say is exactly the text? No. It's my interpretation. So you got to weigh it and judge it. But the beautiful part is to watch a creative movie like that. And as you're weighing it and judging it, the spirit goes, that's it. And in that moment, your heart leaps and goes, he's like that. He's actually in a good mood. He's smiling. So don't write me an email. That's my point. Just go watch The Chosen. But in this, there's a portrait. Mahanim. I got to go back. Sorry. Tangent. Mahanim is where angels descend with revelation of God and angels ascend with a pouring out of our hearts back to him. It's the revelation of who we were made to be. It's not just the revelation of who God is. It's the discovery of who we are as we give back to him what he gives us. And that touches him. And, and you know, the Shulamite, since we sang the Song of Songs tonight, the Shulamite comes to this place where she's been through the twofold testing. And as she comes through the twofold testing and she still loves him, you know, there's something wonderful that God especially loves tested faith. He loves tried love. How many of you know that? There's something about when you love and you don't have all the information and you're going through it that moves God so. It touches him. In fact, it touches us. In fact, the longer we love one another and stay in there in the marriage, the marriages get more pronounced. Like 25-year anniversary is what? The silver. I think like five years, it's called like 10, like T-I-N, like <laughs> aluminum anniversary. <laughs> in other words, you had not done anything. <laughs> you, you have not been really tested yet. But when you hit the 50-year anniversary, what do you call it? Golden. It's like, oh, my gosh. They loved each other for like 50 years. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> because it's, it's been tested. It's been tried. There's something way better than initial love. It's when you've been with each other in the trenches and you almost gave up 20 times, but you didn't. And you fell back in love and you made it. And everybody in all of society goes, that's worth something. Right there. Tested love. So she's gone through the testing. And as she's gone through the testing, she comes up out of it leaning on her beloved and they're looking at her and they tell her to come back so we can look at you. In other words, they, whatever is of God that came down is resting on her and she looks like him and smells like him. And she goes, what is it you see? Mahanim? What is it you're gazing upon? Mahanim, in other words, the dance of the two camps. In other words, I know what's drawing you. It's not me, but it's him and me. It's him 
lavishing his love on me and it's me giving mine back. And that becomes the draw when a heart is fully given. It's the dance of the two camps. How many of you know you weren't just made as automatons? You are loving partners with the king of the universe. In fact, everything you, he has by right, you get by grace. And the fact that he made you for love where you can move him and touch him and it matters is unbelievable. It's a great statement about God that he's like this. He who has everything wants something. You. And that he made you in such a way that gets to love him back. And it's real. It's not just you know, a byproduct of my response to his sovereignty. He welcomed us into the fellowship of the Trinity where God loves God. <laughs> and he brings you into it so that you can love God as God is loving God and you. That's unbelievable. You know what he's done for you? You know what he's let you in on? Long before he displayed his sovereignty over creation, he was love in the fellowship of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect in love. And then Jesus comes as a man. That was the theme in worship tonight. And brings you in through his atoning sacrifice. Forgives you of all your sin. And it would be, it would, it would be astounding if he just forgave you of your sin. But he grabs you and takes you right into the middle of the love affair between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you get caught up in God for all eternity. To rule and reign with him in love. Like we say that. I just said that in five minutes. But beloved, that we have no idea the ramifications of that. And what that means. You're going to rule and reign with him forever. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he goes, don't you know? You know, they're, they're bickering and fighting and divided. And he goes, isn't there someone who has wisdom that can settle these issues so you don't have to take each other to court? And he goes, why are you fighting? He goes, don't you know you're going to judge angels one day? And you're like, Paul... What does that mean? And you're like, I have no idea. Judge angels one day? Judge angels one day? Anybody feel like you're qualified to be the judge of angels one day? Because you're in touch with the weakness of your frame, but somehow your weak frame loving him is the height of all of creation. It's amazing. So I've been stuck in this. I, I'm in this swirl of what are the portraits of Jesus, of God, that move a human heart to give him everything. Not just to receive from him, but to give him back something that moves him. That's, that's what I want to know. How many of you want a life that doesn't just coast? You want to go, I, I want a life that moves him, that touches him. I, I want to... Whatever that looks like, however simple that is. So I'm stuck on a, a lady by the name of Mary of Bethany. And in Luke chapter 10, I'm going I'm to get to John 11. That's really where I want to go because that's where the crux of the matter is. But in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, 
a, a certain lawyer brings up a question. In fact, it's the most important question. How do I inherit eternal life? How many of you would agree that's the most important question? Most questions, you know, don't make it past the grave. Right? Who do, what job do I do? Doesn't make it past the grave. It's an important question. But doesn't make it past the grave. What am I going to do this summer? Doesn't make it past the grave. There's a lot of questions that we're consumed with. How much money am I going to make? Doesn't make it past the grave. None of them. This question makes it past the grave, which means you ought to answer this question first because that's the great enemy, death. Whether you know it or not, you're going to be faced. It's appointed unto man to die once, then give account to God. You, you want to pass that test. How do I get out of that grave? How do I live forever? That, that's what I want to know. How do I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life? I, I don't want to shock me now. Tell me now. Don't tell me later. I, I want to know now. This is an important question. And so Jesus says, well, what do you think? And he goes, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first commandment and to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's pretty darn good. Jesus goes, you're right. Do this and you'll live forever. The only problem is Jesus is there because nobody can do those. No one. <laughs> and the guy wanting to justify himself, he asked a question about the second commandment. He says, who's my neighbor? But I want to set before you that who your neighbor is is a pretty easy one to answer. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Everybody. Especially the ones you don't like. That's your neighbor. There you go. Answered it. Who's your neighbor? Everyone. They got a pulse, can fog a mirror. That's your neighbor. Love them like you would love yourself. I'm like, that's, that's an easy one to answer. I want the answer to the first question. How do I love him with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength? I want to know that answer, Luke. You gave us a whole parable, the Good Samaritan, on the second one. That's the easy one. I want to know the first one. That's the hard one. How do I love somebody I can't see? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Anybody else want to know that? Well, Luke goes, I have something better than a parable. I'm going to introduce you to a little girl named Mary. And she's going to become the example of how to love God with all her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind, and all of her strength. And so it begins with, in verse 38, I'm going to summarize this part because my main teaching is John 11. I wish I had several sessions, but I don't, so I'm going to speed it up. The first part, the beginning of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength begins with the adoring gaze. To presume upon Jesus that he wants you to be there. Your love might be weak, but it's real and it matters to him. He wants you to stay and come to him more than you want to be with him. He made you for him. And he wants it more. And this story is going to be where Martha and her little sister Mary, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And Martha 
is a strong woman. This, this is a woman has a leadership gift on her life. She's amazing. She asked Jesus to come to her house for hors d'oeuvres. The only problem is when you ask Jesus to come to your house, you get everybody else, like the whole country. In fact, if Jesus comes to your house, there's a good chance you could get your roof ripped off and paralytics <laughs> let down. You get his disciples and they don't fast yet. They eat everything. And they come in and all of a sudden, the clash is between the big sister with the leadership gift and the little sister that I can just picture her. She's the dancer. She's the creative one. <laughs> Martha keeps the house in order. Mary just kind of. Now, I don't know if that's really true, but you get the sense of it. And Mary's going to do something astounding. She's going to go and presume that she can sit at Jesus' feet. Now, if you did that in that day, you were making a statement that you're his disciple. That's a huge statement. You know why? She's a girl. And girls at that time were not allowed to sit at a rabbi's feet. In fact, do you know there's only one instance in all of history in that period where a girl sat at a rabbi's feet and when she did it, she was sternly rebuked and never did it again. And what makes it even more scandalous is it was the rabbi's daughter. So a rabbi's daughter presumed that she's a disciple of her dad and she gets sternly rebuked, but Mary walks right through the social dynamics and the social barriers of the day, and whatever she saw in Jesus, she went, I know he'll let me stay. He wants me here more than I want to be here. And she sits down. She breaks right through the social barriers. We don't know how the disciples reacted, they probably reacted with such speech that Luke said, I, I can't put this in the book. We're just going to mark that out. <laughs> kind of remove what Peter said. <laughs> but whatever, or they were too busy eating, and, and it didn't matter. But, but the point is, is that Mary presses through the social barrier. She has to press through the family barrier. Can you imagine how many dirty looks Martha gave Mary? She's running out of food. The whole thing's going bad. And there her little freed up creative sister is. <laughs> sitting at the master's feet doing nothing while she's working again, making it all happen. Can you imagine how many dirty looks Mary got from Martha? Walking behind Jesus, carrying the tray. At some point, Martha explodes. Jesus, don't you care? <laughs> Can you imagine telling Jesus who's been healing and casting out demons all day, don't you care? Don't you care? My hors d'oeuvres are running out. The whole thing's messed up and she won't help me. Make her come and help me, Jesus. And at that point, the social barrier and the family barrier are nothing. You want to know what the biggest barrier is? All the reasons in Mary's own mind 
that Jesus shouldn't let her stay. The same with you. You see, if you don't believe he wants you there, you'll never pray. If you believe he's mostly mad and mostly sad over your life, you will not talk to him. You don't like to talk to people that you think are mad at you or don't like you. And yet we approach God all the time. You live with a locked up heart setting up this veneer of who you think he wants you to be. And you never get to honest dialogue. You never, your heart will never flow like a river to him in love. You'll never actually talk to him. You won't even be vulnerable. You'll just keep pretending. Do the Holy Ghost two-step in front of others. But when you lock the door at night and you go to bed, you think he's mostly mad over your weak life. That's how I felt. I knew he loved me. I mean, God had to love me. <laughs> That's what he is. God is love. He loves me. But now that he's got me in his kingdom, he doesn't like me very much because I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. I thought he was mostly mad, mostly sad. But can you picture as Martha drills into Jesus, how dare you let her sit there? And at that moment, the arguments in her mind agree with Martha. He shouldn't let me sit here. What was I thinking to come here? <laughs> and Jesus, while looking at Mary, looks at Martha. And you could imagine that he could have easily have said, Hey, Mary, I really like you. And you were bold to do this, but you're causing your sister to stumble. Would you get up and help her? And then both of you come back later. How many of you sound, that sounds like a Christian answer, doesn't it? That sounds like a leadership answer right there. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. Instead, while looking at Mary, he's talking to Martha. And he says, do you see that look? Do you see that look? She presumed that I loved her. Now it matters how I respond to her. She presumed that I actually wanted her to be here. She presumed that when I came and I took on flesh, that it was because of her. And as he looks at Mary and talks to Martha, he goes, Martha, Martha, you are distracted and concerned about many things, but only one thing's needed. You know what that one thing is? That look. You see that look? That's the same look Moses had. That's the same look David had. That's the same look Isaiah had. And I will not take it away from her. In fact, in a few months, I'm going to die for that look right there. So that she can stay forever. So that her presumption will be solidified by my great love at the cross. I'm going to remove every barrier in her mind on the earth 
in regard to sin, the whole thing. You can stay, Mary. <laughs> and at that moment, love begins. That's where love begins. The adoring gaze. And you stay long enough till you hear him say, you can stay. You can really stay. And at that moment, you begin to pray. Because it's actually you talking to God. <laughs> Not just you saying biblical phrases to make him, convince him to like you more. <laughs> like you. Like you. He took on your form. Forever you're going to relate to God in your own form as a man. Like you. That's a little over the top. That's way more than like. Do you have any idea how God feels? Why he did what he did? But that's not where it's going to end. I really wanted to get to John 11. Let's turn there. We could spend the whole thing. Are you with me? Talk to me, people. I thought I was in like a southern charismatic church or something. Talk to me. Are you with me? Say, say something. Are, are you with me? Okay. How about this car? Are y'all with me? Okay. Maybe. <laughs> John 11, because Jesus, as soon as he shows her that she can stay, now he's going to bring her in deeper to the wrestle of faith. He's going to bring her into a life of intercession now, where Jesus weeps over the world, where Jesus is in the nitty-gritty. How many of you know Jesus coming wasn't a one-time thing? It's a reflection of God's heart always, that he's in the nitty-gritty and the pain of everything. They are weeping and interceding. He's interceding for God to be glorified and men and women to be pitied. Always. Always those two emotions are in his heart. For God to be loved and adored and for men and women to be pitied, to have mercy. But in John chapter 11, he's going to bring her... The first place of intercession and in a love affair with God or loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength begins at the adoring gaze where Mary can sit there and she can overcome all the barriers, all the hindrances to why she shouldn't be allowed. And Jesus declares, you can stay. Alan, you can stay. Your love is weak, but it's real. And it matters to me and I won't take it from you. Stay, young man. Stay, young lady. Stay. And then he wants to show Mary a different face now. It's going to be the face where he gives the promise and the promise looks dead. And he brings her into that place of pain for intercession. Because he's taking this somewhere. He's trying to get her past just where she sits at his feet. Now he wants her to discover that he's in the nitty gritty pain of life. And that it matters. And in John chapter 11, it begins with Mary's going to see a new face. Now look in John chapter 11. It says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So here they are again. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with the fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. So here... Right at the very beginning, the Apostle John's making a connection. He goes, hey, I'm about to tell you a story about Mary. And it's the same Mary 
that in the next chapter is going to pour everything out over Jesus. And you go, well, why didn't you just wait till 12 to say that? He goes, no, I had to give you the tip off now that this is what's going to produce that. And if I don't tell you now, you'll never read John 11 because you don't like it. That's a face of Jesus you don't want to know. You just rather go from sitting at his feet to pouring out your love upon him, give everything. In fact, whenever I hear Mary preached and discussed, it's Luke 10, Mary, the adoring gaze, beholding the beauty of the Lord and acquiring his temple. And the John 12, where she pours the oil out upon his feet. I hardly ever hear anybody mention John 11, but the apostle goes, hey, hey, note to self, hey, don't skip the 12. Right here's where the gold comes. Right here is where the is where it takes place that moves her to want to give him everything. So in John chapter 11, we see it begins with whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now here, beloved, it doesn't say he seemed to be sick. It doesn't say he had symptoms of sick, but he needs to deny them and just believe he's not sick. It actually says he's sick. And it actually says he's going to die. It's funny how the New Testament is so real with that. And we play so many mind games of faith. I, I remember one time I, I ran a 50-yard dash uh, playing football to we were going to, all the faculty were going to play the students at IHOPU. And I did a 50-yard did a pass pattern in flip-flops and khaki pants with Mike Bickle throwing the football and my hamstring tore and rolled up. And I was done. Black and blue, and I went, oh, no. When it detaches, that's surgery. And I remember going in the healing rooms in shorts, and my whole back leg is a knot in black and blue. And these four people said, they said, what's wrong? I said, my hamstring is tore. It's rolled up. They go, no, it's not. They go, you only think it is. That's symptoms. I go, no, feel the knot. It's tore. It's really right here. It's black and blue. And I'm your leader, and I'm telling you to stop saying that. Like Lazarus is sick, people. He doesn't appear to be sick. He's sick. They prayed. It did nothing. I go in my office, and Daniel Lim, he, I tell him what happened. He goes, oh, no, you've had a soldier, shoulder injury. You have three sons. You, you can't have another injury. You won't be able to play sports with them. And he knelt down, grabbed my feet, and began to weep over me. Oh, God, don't let him not be able. And I felt electricity come up my leg, roll my hamstring back, and attach it. And I went, glory. <laughs> that was awesome. I'll never forget that lesson. That's a side note. That's a different teaching. But real nonetheless, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, now this is interesting. I'm going to read to verse 5. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now twice it says that Jesus loved them. So there's two questions we're going to ask here. Hey, what kind of glory are you looking for? This won't end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So what kind of glory are you looking for? 
Because if you're just looking for someone to die and then be really rotten and decayed and smell really bad and putrid and worms all in them after four days, then you don't need somebody you love. How about pick somebody like a Pharisee? Or like Pontius Pilate? If the glory you're after is just a stinking, rotten corpse, you could pick anybody. If it's just a display that you can raise a four-day-old dead person, then you just need any old bloke, any old chap will do. But Jesus chooses the ones he loves, which means the glory he's after is not about a dead corpse that's rotten coming out of the grave. It's what's produced in the ones he loves. Because some of y'all, the bad thing happened, and your first question was, I thought you loved me. If you treat your friends like this, Jesus. <laughs> and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. I treat just my friends like this. And then the second thing you've got to ask is, if this is about bringing glory from the ones he loves, why do you give a vague prophecy that makes them hope that he's never going to die? Look what it says. Now, now, look what, hey, wrestle with me here for a moment. I know it's nighttime, but we're going to pretend it's morning and it's a classroom setting. And it says right here, this sickness is not unto death. But for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Doesn't that leave the ones he loves with the impression that he's not going to die? <laughs> I mean, they walk away glad. They're like, yeah, it's good. And then the next verse is, and he delayed two more days. And I'm like, Jesus, why did you give the vague prophecy that set up the promise only for the promise to look dead, only to resurrect it after it's dead? Like, why do you give vague words like that? I mean, have you ever got a vague prophecy like that? You're going to be an apostle to the nations. You're going to reach the Muslim world and thousands are going to come into the kingdom because of your preaching of the gospel. And you're like, yeah, I'm your guy. I'm your gal. Yes, Lord, here am I, send me. Kurdistan, here I come. And what the prophet didn't tell you is you're going to prison. You're going to be hated. Betrayed three times. Uh, uh. And God doesn't give you that part. Because then it wouldn't be tested love. And the testing of love is in it. And I read this, and this bothers me a little bit about Jesus. I'm being honest. I'm like, Jesus, I'm a pastor. It seems to me like it would be way more pastoral... If you said, hey, Lazarus is going to die. 
but tell him to die well. Tell him to die with faith. We need some people dying with faith. Not like begging and pleading for another month on a machine. Like we need some people to just learn to die well in faith and then tell him I need him really rotten so I'm going to delay for about four days until worms and decay and ugh, it's just nasty. It's going to be like stench. Actually, Martha says don't open the tomb. It, it stinks. A stench. So that people will know I have even power over the grave. So tell Lazarus he's going to die, but I'm going to raise him. And then, of course, he'll die later again. But, but I'm going to raise him this time. So while it's going to end in death, it's not going to totally end in death. It's going to, he's going to be raised. But tell him to die well. How many of you hear that answer? I go, that's a good pastoral answer. I like that. Pastor Jesus, shepherd, good shepherd. Chief shepherd of the flock. Keeper of our souls. How many of you, or do you think that, well, let me just take a poll. I know you're not going to be honest, but I'm going to take a poll. How many of you think it is more pastoral to say, give a vague prophecy, this will not end to death, but for the glory of God and for the Son of God to be glorified through it? Or you think this would be more pastoral. He's going to die. But it's okay. I've chosen him because I love him to be the really dead putrid corpse that I raised on the fourth day as a sign that I am the son of God. And I'm going to use him. I picked him. And this is going to cause many throughout the nation to believe that I'm the son of God and the Messiah. Which one seems more pastoral and more loving? The one Jesus did? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. See, I know some of y'all. Some of y'all are like, I'm going with Jesus. I don't care what you say. I'm with him. We know he's right. <laughs> like, how many of you think the other one's more pastoral? Raise your hand. Okay, this is an honest church. All right. And yet Jesus gives them the vague prophecy. He gives them the promise and then he's going to let it die. And he's going to do it on purpose. Look what he does. It says, then, in verse 6, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then he says to them, in verse 11, he said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he's asleep, it'll help him get better. Why would you wake up somebody that's asleep who's sick? And Jesus literally goes, hey, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, people. I can use figures of speech. I'm God. I created language. It's a metaphor. He's dead. <laughs> he literally goes, he's dead. <laughs> he goes, he's dead. And I'm glad for your sakes I was not there that you may believe. So then here's what's going to happen. We're going to see in this, as we go through this quickly, is that three times... Jesus is going to have the same question asked to him, but only one time is it going to do anything. Three times it's going to be a question asked, but only one time is it going to be intercession. Martha hears that Jesus is on the outskirts of the town. 
she comes to Jesus, and look what she says in verse 20, verse 21. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. You can read between the lines in that. Why did you delay? It took the same amount of time for you to walk here as it did for us. Why did you delay? If you would have been here, he would not have died. But then she even goes to pull Jesus. She goes, but even now, God will give you whatever you ask for. Beloved, that's powerful faith. There's only one problem with this. Jesus already knows he can ask the Father for anything he wants. He's trying to get her to ask. He's trying to get her to pull something out of him. But she won't. Look at her answer. She goes, even now, you can ask, and the, the Father would do it. And Jesus goes, your brother will rise again. And then she lets Jesus off the hook. Look what she does. I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Love, do you know how good theologically that is? Jesus is going to heal everybody eventually. We know, he's, we know you're going to raise everybody at the last day, and you're going to raise Lazarus too. I believe in you, Jesus. I mean, that's a faith statement. I don't know why you didn't do it this time, but you know what? You're going to raise him in the last day. And Jesus, she lets him out of the wrestle. She lets him off the hook, and he doesn't like it. Look what he says to her. I am the resurrection. Don't talk to me about the last day resurrection. I'm the resurrection in the life. And he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And those who believe in me shall never die. Martha, don't you let me off the hook. Ask me. Pull it out of me, Martha. I'm not this God automaton, this AI in the sky. I'm a real person. In fact, I created you in my image. That's why you have personality. Pull on me. Don't let me out of the wrestle. Engage me in your emotions. Don't guard your heart. Don't shut down and theologically write it off. I am the resurrection, Martha. Look what she says. And he goes, do you believe this? And look what she says. Yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who came into the world. Do you know you won't find a greater prophetic statement about Jesus in the four Gospels? Peter's, you're the Christ, the Son of God. She goes that, you're the Christ, the Son of God. The Father sent you in the world, and you're going to raise everybody at the last day. What? And even now, God will give you whatever you ask for, Jesus. The problem is, Jesus already knows the Father will give him whatever he asks. He's waiting for somebody else to ask him and enter the pain with him. He wants friends in the wrestle. He wants friends in the nitty-gritty. He wants prayers beyond words. We want to just not have an overflowing heart. We don't want to sit down before him and gaze on his beauty, really trust him, because that means we actually, actually have to talk to him. And live in that tension of whether he talked back to us. And then if we finally do that and we get this trusting, overflowing heart, now he'll pull us in to where real life is in the nitty-gritty where the pain is. 
And will we meet him there? We like sitting at his feet, presuming on his love. But what about where real people are and real things are dying and real things are hurting? And Jesus goes, I want you there with me too. In fact, I can't think of a worse thing. Do you remember when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane with the 11? And he told eight of them, you stay over there. And he brings three of them to weep with him over here. God in the flesh wants friends in the suffering who will intercede with him. Who will pull something out of him. Beloved, she's not bringing him into her pain. He's actually bringing her into his pain that he lives with 24-7. He not only hears the pain of Lazarus, but 150,000 who died that day. And all the injustice where God weeps over the condition of man. And he wants somebody to meet him there that can impact him there. But we don't want to go there. We'd rather just, hey, you're going to raise everybody at the end. I'd rather keep a guarded heart, not let the pain touch me, and just give theological statements. Because then you don't have to intercede. That's why Joel stood up in the midst of the crisis and said, Hey, rend your heart and not your garment. God's not looking for a theological statement. He's wanting you to weep with him. He's wanting you to enter into the pain. Let it touch you. Let it touch you. Martha does nothing. She's the most theologically accurate. I can't find a, a, another place in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels, rather, that give that kind of statement about who Jesus is. It does nothing to him. In fact, she goes back and goes, the master's looking for you, Mary. <laughs> Whatever he needed, didn't give from me. Whatever my religious framework was, it didn't produce the resurrection. And she says, the master's looking for you. Jesus stays on the outskirts of town waiting for her to come. And she comes and she falls. She worships. She's not offended. And yet she weeps and doesn't let him off the hook. If you would have been here. The same question. The professional mourners are going to say the same thing. If you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Martha's going to say, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Mary's going to say the same thing, but she does it while weeping and worshiping. Is there a place in intercession where we can actually trust God, love God, Not be offended and yet not let him off the hook. Oh God, Tampa. Oh God, Tampa. See, because for Mary, it's an issue of did she really know Jesus? Did the one that she sat at his feet when she looked at his eyes and knew he was loved, does he care about what she cares about? Yeah. 
does he care? And so she falls and she worships and she weeps. And do you know what the next verse says? And Jesus groaned in himself. Look at this. Oh my gosh. Look at verse 32. And when Mary came where Jesus was, saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Do you see what she did? Her groan, her, her weeping just touched into him. Which means he's going to ask the father to raise Lazarus, but he wants partnership in the place of suffering. Where the intercessor enters into the calling of Jesus, where he pleads for God to be glorified and men and women to have mercy upon them. At the same time, meet me here. Meet me here. Don't let God off the hook, but don't accuse him. Don't let God off the hook, but don't accuse him. Love him. That's the place. That's the sweet spot of intercession. Don't, don't let God off the hook, but don't accuse him. Love him there. See, it is an expression of love when you don't let God off the hook for Tampa, for Florida, for your family. Now, if you have a child, a wayward child, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Do you know exactly what I'm talking about? If you have a wayward child, you enter into this automatically. Because whether they live forever really matters to you. And it's, oh God, I love you. But did you give me this child? Did you give me this child to live at a distance? Did you give me this child so that this child would not know you and live forever outside of your presence? If you've been a parent, you know exactly what this is. I'm not accusing you, but you better do something. Right? Any, any parent ever been there? I ain't accusing you, but you better do something. Any parent there now? I ain't accusing you. I love you. You better do something. Because I know there's no way that I love him more than you love him. So be you, God. Have you ever been? That's where prayer actually has its power is when you tell God to be himself. Be yourself. That's what Mary's doing. She's going, I thought I knew you. It's tears of love, but it's tears of, I thought I knew you. Do I really know you? Because if you would have been here, do you see it? Do you see the difference? And at that point, God groans. And at that point, God, as in the flesh, weeps. And when her tears and his tears come together, at that point he goes, where is he? Roll the stone away. Right now. Martha comes up again and goes, oh no, don't do it. He smells really bad. But Jesus has been touched so deeply by this little girl, not letting him off the hook, that he goes, Martha, did I not say, if you would only believe, you would see the glory of God? Martha! And at that point, 
He says, Father, you always hear my prayers. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out of the grave. And at that point, Mary discovers something. He's greater than the suffering. He's greater. He's greater. And at that point, she's the only one who's been listening to him. And in John chapter 12, Jesus is about to go through his own delay. Where he dies on the cross and it looks like the father has abandoned him. And it looks like the father has stayed two days more. He isn't saved off the cross. And he enters into his own dark night. Where he's going to face suffering for the sins of the entire world. Where he's going to bear a wrath he cannot bear. He's going to die a death that we should have died. He's going to pay a debt that we should have paid. Where he gets crushed and bears what should have been due us. And he goes into the grave and it looks like the promise is dead. And Mary's the only one listening. The disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. But she's the only one that knows this is the week. This is the time. He saved me in my hour of suffering. Now I'm going to encourage his heart to obey his father in the hour of his suffering. And at that moment, she comes in. It's a Saturday night. They break the Sabbath. And John tells us on the Saturday night before the triumphal entry, she comes in and it's a banquet for Lazarus. And she walks in front of everybody and she takes her entire inheritance and she breaks it open and pours it out over him. Everything she has. And at that point, Judas gets stirred up And we know that in just a minute, Satan's going to enter him. And at that moment, Judas is stirred up and he says, what a waste. We could have gave all that for the poor. And Jesus goes, you have the poor always. You can always give everything you want to, Judas. When you decide to quit stealing out of the treasury box, you can give to the poor too. He says, leave her alone. She's done a good work for me. She's anointed me for my burial. Now here's what you don't know. John tells us it happened on Saturday night. And that's probably historically when it happened. But when Mark writes his gospel, he says it happens on Wednesday night. Why? What is John trying, what is Mark trying to tell us? Mark's trying to tell us that when Jesus went to the cross, and you remember when he could no longer carry the cross beam? When he had been beaten? And if you've seen the passion of Christ, you understand what the cat of nine tails and those rods did to him, and how he, the Bible says he looked like a worm and not a man. His beard's ripped out, his back's filleted, his body's crushed, and he's taking the cross beam to the place of the skull and he can't carry it anymore because all his blood is draining out. And he drops it for real. He's not faking. He literally 
and his human frame can't take it anymore. And at that point, the professional mourners come back on the scene. Another little Jewish boy going to the cross. Oh, God, if you would have been here, this wouldn't be happening to us. And at that moment, Jesus, as he can't even carry the cross, I can see him. He stands up and he goes, don't you weep for me. It looks like I'm losing, but I'm winning. Don't you weep for me. I'm winning. Not many hours from now when I'm poured out and all my blood and life is poured out for the sins of humanity. I've won. Don't you weep for me. And at that moment, I can see him smelling Mary's perfume. He stands up. You know what it says in Mark? Wherever the gospel is preached, her story is to be told. Why? Because he wanted the disciples to know, when you go and share the gospel to all the people groups I send you, they need to look like this. They need to have a heart like this. They need to have a heart that gives everything. I'm not interested in your numbers. I'm interested in the quality of heart. Tell her story of love. Tell her story of how a human being could encourage my heart as I went to the cross. Do you realize that a human heart can impact God in the flesh? Most of you see him like an energy force in the sky. Like a big AI up there catching your bad words and your bad actions and then going through the algorithm and signing, oh, yeah, that level of hell. Oh, that person. Oh, that level of hell. Oh, that. You don't see him as real. You don't see him that he can interact with you. You can move him. But if there's anything that God in the flesh tells us, he can be impacted. You say, Alan, what meaneth all that? I don't know. I'm just lost in that story. And I'm like, God, can you produce a heart in me that loves like that? Where I won't accuse, but I actually recognize the suffering and I lay hold of you in it I'm not going to live at a distance and beloved Jesus will bring you in to fascinate your heart at sitting at his feet and then he'll go I really like you in fact I really love you now would you go with me skipping on the mountains would you go with me would you go with me to the place of suffering would you let me take you there? Would you enter in where I weep always? See, I used to think it was the strong tears of the prayer movement that was going to birth revival. I thought it was going to be the strength of the prayer movement. And the more I read the Bible, the more I realize it's the brokenness of the prayer movement. 
to join him in that place of suffering. We can have the worship team come up. And if you live long enough, you'll go through those cycles of sitting, of being fascinated that he lets you stay, of beholding his beauty, and of the pain and suffering and the intercession. I think if there was anything we could pray for tonight, why, why do I say that? Can I, can I tell one more story? Do we have time for one more story? Because it's Fredericksburg. I tell it every time I'm with you Fredericksburg people. Remember in Fredericksburg when Corey and I came? And we had been part of the awakening and the Lord moved there for a season of 10 months. And after that, it was like all hell broke loose. My body was decimated while everyone else was getting healed. I was getting injured on a nightly basis almost. As the manifestation of the spirit, I would get torpedoed in the hip or big men who don't like to fall backwards would fall and put their knees through my feet or 400 pound man rip my shoulder out falling on concrete. And I, there's many nights I like crawled back up on the stage and, and Wes would look at me and go, What's wrong? I go, that guy hurt me. I think he broke my ribs. And then Wes would go, the Lord wants to heal ribs. And then pray for ribs. And, but, but the point was is that I was getting injured. My body was breaking down. Things were happening that I didn't know what was happening. The kind of the backside of story of a move of God that they don't tell you about. And so... I'm, I'm there with Corey, and he's going through real suffering. His wife had been through several miscarriages, was traumatizing to her. And I remember we went to, we went to Fredericksburg to minister there. And that night, we got there early so we could share with each other what's going on in our lives. So we got real raw, nitty-gritty, cried together, prayed for God to break in and change the circumstances. And I remember that night going to bed and, and, and just asking the Lord, Lord, wh why is this happening? Like, I thought you loved me, but all hell's broken open, and I'm, I'm in a trial, and I, I, I don't know what's going on. My immune system was attacking things in my body I didn't know at the time. It was just things were breaking down. And I remember weeping that night. I go to bed, and then when I go to bed, I have a dream. And the first scene of the dream is of, is, is of I wrote an article for, um, I think it was Leadership Today magazine. I wrote an article on Joel, chapter 2, standing at the critical juncture, that we were in a place of our nation. If you could just, is Kyle, is that you? If you bring it down just a little bit. And so um, I can't multitask. I'll get sucked right in the music. I'll be gone. So the, the um, what was I saying? Joel 2. So anyway, I'd written an article calling the nation to repentance. And in my dream, it was put on the internet. And down at the bottom, where, these, where the comment section is, were curses being put on me. Witches and warlocks. 
And in the dream, I didn't know if they were real witches and warlocks or just believers with high opinions. I didn't know. But they were curses. And then I went through one of the comments and I ended up in this warlock's apartment where he's cursing leaders and preachers and ministers of the gospel and their family, their wives, their marriages, their children. And I can remember him, he had this python wrapped around his neck and tattooed out and he was cursing and cursing. And I hear the Lord say, it's witchcraft, Alan. And, and I'm just, I, I'm just, I don't know what, quite what to do. I'm just standing there. It's witchcraft. And then the scene switches. And I'm standing with Bob Jones and Corey before this massive revival of young people. Massive revival as far as the eye could see. And I'm quoting Psalm 126. The Lord has done great things today. And we hug Bob Jones and I wake up. I call Corey the next morning. I go, I've got to tell you, I've had a dream. And so I tell him the dream and I go, it's witchcraft, Corey. But it's going to end with a massive revival. It's going to end the enemies cursing. But, but, but it ended with this massive revival and we quoted Psalm 126. Well, I quoted the good part of 126. The first part of 126 is those who sow in tears will reap in joy. It's about tears. In fact, when Israel got let out of exile, they're all happy. We were like men who dreamed our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues were singing. They've been in prison camps for 70 years and they finally got out. And they're marching up to the temple. And as they go up, they're reciting Psalm 126. And as they're laughing and singing, it's as if some guy stops in the middle of it and goes, Hey, wait a minute. Before you forget, before you get really comfortable in the land again, before you forget it's that God brought you out of the exile, before you forget, I want to let you know what got the breakthrough. It was our tears in those prison camps. Today's laughter was purchased because the currency of those tears in the prison camps in the broken bone season when nobody wanted to sing. That's what got the breakthrough. So I tell Corey the dream, and all of a sudden we're sitting at the breakfast table, and I just get done, and an elderly woman rocks up and goes, Hey, are you Alan Hood? I said, Yes, ma'am, I am. She goes, My name's Bonnie Jones, and my husband, Bob, and I would like to have breakfast with you. And he was the one in my dream that we were embracing. And now I'm freaked out a little bit. I've heard about Bob and his ministry, but I, I'd never met with him, sat down, and I'm going through my mind. Am I right with God? Is there any sin that I need to confess? I'm like, I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm doing the math, fear God. So we sit down and he goes, oh, I see you boys been preaching Joel. He said, yes, sir. He goes, yeah, and witchcraft's tried to kill you boys. He said, yeah, y'all been preaching repentance. He goes, yep, I used to think revival was just coming, but it's judgment and revival now. The body hadn't repented. It's judgment and revival. But revival's still coming, but it's judgment and revival, and I'm living my whole rest of my life calling the body of Christ to repentance. He goes and... Y'all been preaching it. And so witchcraft's tried to kill you. And he keeps talking. He looks over at Corey and he goes, yeah, I can still see the python marks wrapped around your neck where it tried to choke you out, boy. 
and it's this deep Arkansas thick accent. Tried to kill you, boy. And then I and then I go, oh my gosh, it is witchcraft. I go, and I've heard where people have been sick, calamities happen to their family, and Bob's come in after 10 years and prayed for him, and instantly they were delivered. And so I go, Bob, I go, Mr. Jones, would you pray for us that this would be broken off? And he goes, no, I ain't doing that. I go, no, would you pray for us? that we'd... No, I ain't doing that. He goes, I ain't doing that religious thing. What do you think I've been doing for the last two hours? And I'm sitting there going, it didn't feel like intercession. Felt like talking. Felt like sharing. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, y'all been weeping, ain't you? I go, yes, sir. He goes, you've been weeping, right? I go, yes, sir. He goes, well, weeping gets the witchcraft out of your eyes. And I am like in this bizarre, like you young people won't know this, but the Twilight Zone. Kind of like, what is that other show? Like the Black Mirror kind of thing? It's like the, like the, this is a weird realm. I'm like going. He goes, y'all been weeping, right? I go, yeah. He goes, witchcraft gets, weeping gets the witchcraft out of your eyes. See, witchcraft comes in the moment of your suffering to tell you that all your fruit of the last season didn't count and it robs you of the joy of ever thinking you'll have, have fruit in the future season. It confuses you. It gets in your eyes like smoke. And it robs you of thinking your life ever amounted to much back then. And then it tells you your life's not going to amount to much in the future. And he goes, but keep weeping. It'll get the witchcraft out of your eyes. Just keep weeping. He goes, y'all's ministry's good. You'll be all right. <laughs> and beloved, that led into a season that continues to where I just go. You're serious on this, Father. It's the groans of the prisoner that release the move. You don't want me to accuse, but you don't want me to let you off the hook. Okay, then. I won't. Then you be you, God. You be you. Rend the heavens. Come down. I'm rending my heart. You rend the heavens. I'm rending my heart. I'm feeling the pain. Then you rend the heavens. I'm rending my heart. Then you rend the heavens. You rend the heavens and come down. 